0: The Midday Report
1: I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report Uh, The big breaking news story today is that the tourism minister, Patricia DeLille, she's only been in that portfolio for a few weeks. She has acted very quickly on the issues around the SA Tourism Board, today announcing that she will officially dissolve the SA Tourism Board on Friday. This, of course, is On The Back in the wake of that Tottenham Hotspur sponsorship saga. So she's put out a statement today saying she believes that good cause exists to dissolve the board and she shall shall do so officially through the Government Gazette on Friday this week. Well, Rebecca Davis is the journalist who broke this story for Daily Maverick uh, a couple of weeks ago. Rebecca, good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. The tourism minister has now... The Board of South African Tourism Ostensibly it's because of the Tottenham Hotspur deal There are other issues around um, Allegations, very serious Allegations of uh, sexual Harassment as well Do you think that she's acted swiftly And is it sufficient
2: Mandy I think we have to give Credit where it's due and there is a sense that this is all quite low-hanging fruit for an incoming minister, but we also know that South Africa's ministers often do not choose to pluck even the lowest-hanging fruit. So let's, let's give credit where it's due. I think Minister Law has shown impressive speed in trying to bring a definitive end to the disastrous Tottenham Hotspur deal, and that this move is very much to be welcomed in that respect as well. But I must say uh, my enthusiasm was slightly tempered upon reading the statement, to discover that she's doing it effectively because she has no choice because seven of the 11 board members have resigned, right?
1: Yeah, they've all (laughs) resigned in the last couple of weeks, so there is effectively no board anyway.
2: There isn't. There's only three remaining. It would be very interesting to know, and I don't at this stage, who those three, you know, holdouts are. Um, So she, she wasn't, her hand was forced effectively, but it is definitely to be welcomed. It's not sufficient, though, Mandy. I think that is the main thing. That we need to take from this. So the DA's Mandy De Freitas has been calling for a parliamentary inquiry into the Hotspurs deal. I don't think that's going to happen, but there are reasons to think that it should. For instance, there are really pertinent, outstanding questions about the role of the acting CEO, Chemba Kumalo, in all of this. It would also be, I think, very fruitful to probe the apparent insistence of the outgoing board chair, Tadamilé Buta. His apparent insistence on following through with the deal, even after everything we now know had come to light. That insistence seems to me, Mandy, to be inexplicable, or rather, explicable only through sinister means, if you know what I mean. There's no good reason why anyone could have been so insistent on following through with that deal if there was not some element, I think, of a personal gain at stake.
1: And Rebecca, looking forward now, what what needs to be done? How do they recover from the Tottenham saga
2: and uh, what does a new board need to do? You know, it's interesting because I think I speak probably for many of us when I say SA tourism generally flies pretty under the radar, right? It's not an, an agency that's kind of in the news a lot. And I think it's probably also true to say that the saga has brought the agency to its lowest ebb of public trust ever, probably. So the new board certainly has its work cut out for, for them, whoever they are, have to solve in rebuilding public trust. What is definitely, definitely non-negotiable is that it has to include members who have actual tourism experience. This was one of the problems that uh, DeLille actually mentioned in her statement, that the resignation directly after the deal came to light of the likes of Enver Dumini and Rosemary Anderson effectively left the deal, completely didn't, left the board, denuded of any actual tourism experience. I mean, it seems like a low bar to meet. Again, we know that the lowest of bars are often not met, hmm. so please... From minister DeLau, I implore you, at the very least, stock this new board with people who know something about tourism.
1: Rebecca, thank you very much. Rebecca Davis, journalist at the Daily Maverick, speaking to us about this decision by the tourism minister to dissolve the SA Tourism Board. Well, what is the, the damage that has been wrought and where does tourism go to from here? Solly Moing, brand strategist, tourism expert, joining us now to give us some more analysis on this. Solly, good afternoon to you. The minister has acted swiftly here as we've heard Rebecca describe, she has done the right thing, but possibly not sufficient. What are your thoughts?
3: Thank you. Hello, Mandy, and to your listeners out there. Look, uh, I totally agree that it's the right decision to make. I mean, though, you know, her the, hand was forced, as you say, but a lot of damage has been done to the industry. This, this was. You know, when you spoke about state capture, you know, also for, that thing, oh, for other things going wrong, in Antarctica, for some reason, this tourism industry, tourism department was almost sheltered. I, apart from the shenanigans of the pre- previous minister, there was not, we didn't have so much scandals. But what people are whispering, that have to do with people who are, like, uh, the, the current acting COO, CFO, we've seen the arrogance, and he did apologize for it. But apparently, he had too many dis- decisions made outside of the board that were imposed on the board and that's what that's part of what forced the previous board members to say you know what we can't be part of these things we don't know what's going on we're supposed to be the board so I think that the minister needs to look further than just the board we definitely need a new board of stable people who know what to do and who will follow the law and who will do what needs to be done to help South Africa's tourism recover but they also need to look at the the management of, of, of Asian tourism because it should he mustn't just stop at the board and ensure that the, 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 whoever is CEO, actually they need to find a, a permanent CEO as soon as possible, and that person must act like a CEO and not speak down to some and not make decisions that that I under, I end, up, end, up, end up making us ask all sorts of questions about who is really benefiting from what's going on. Mm.
1: Uh, Solly, uh, of course this is ostensibly about the uh, Tottenham Hotspur deal that was the catalyst, but there are other issues within this board. There are these allegations of sexual harassment as well. Uh, we understand that that was one of the reasons that Timber Kamalo asked for the board to actually be dissolved. Uh, it seems as though this was just the, the straw that broke the camel's back.
3: Yeah, I'm sorry, but the thing is, it's not for the CEO to ask for the board to be taken out, is it? Really? I mean, the CEO reports to the board, so I think Tema Kumalo is overstepping st- his line from time to time. He is a good spokesman. He's very confident in all the stuff about him, but I think he has come out very badly. His own image has not come out clean from everything that's that's happened. He needs to be to be to rein in a little bit and to understand that he's he's a CFO. He's an acting CEO. He reports to the board. The, board has to approve the things that he, does. he doesn't tell. It's not like the, the dog has to keep working, the, the, the tail has to keep working the dog. As it seems to be the case as things are.
1: Mm. Solly, thank you very much. Solly Moeng, brand strategist, tourism expert, speaking to us there. What are your thoughts? We've uh, we've had Ndiwe Susulu, of course, was in the role. Uh, she uh, took a lot of fire for the fact that the Tottenham deal happened on, on her watch. She's no longer a cabinet minister, and now we've got Patricia DeLore coming in, I think acting very swiftly. She's axed the board. Now she needs to appoint a new board. Do you think this is the right way to deal with it?
0: The Midday Report.
1: The former Business Day editor Songhezo Zibi, also the former chairperson of the political think tank Ravonia Circle, has been at the podium for the last little while because he is busy launching the new political party, Rise Mzansi. He says it's a political alternative, not just another opposition party. Uh, lots of excitement around the, the potential of the birth of another party, uh, also independent candidates as well. Let's have a, a little listen to what Songhezo Zibi has been saying.
4: Those who know Amakoduga know. So as much as we speak English in the cities and we end up in, in you know, in the cities we end up in, and, and in events such as this, deep down, some of us are instinctively village people. And for important occasions like this, my instinct is to speak Isikosa, which brings a certain sense of gravity to the matter. So please bear with me and my village stories just now. And please forgive me if my english bundles run out occasionally but the village is what i know and the best way i can articulate why the work we do is unavoidable so to get to my village you take the coffee bay and holding the wall off ramp off the n2 just south of mtata anyone who has been on the road to coffee bay will tell you it is even hard for four by fours in some places driving off road is safer than what remains of the Chad road? I can tell you confidently there is someone watching me right now who is confirming this to the person sitting next to them.
1: So that's how Songezo Zibi started, anecdotally, uh, bringing the the audience in. Uh, he's now been speaking about uh, the new party, what its intentions are to be. So Goba EWN reporter is there for us to be. So good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. What has Songezo Zibi been saying about rise and Zanzi?
5: Good afternoon, Mandy. Well, you know, it's interesting, Mandy, that you know that soundbite that you played about Sandile uh, Zibi, speaking about his uh, childhood uh, from uh, from Umandulu, which is a little-known uh, village in the Eastern Cape, is where he's from, and he's managed to sort of, uh, you know, make a very successful career for himself here in Johannesburg. And I think that it's sort of the vision that this uh, that this party has is that. You know, when you look at when you look at the national leadership, you know there's some you know harvard educated guys, guys with MBAs. Um, there's Professor Nick Bedell, who's the founding director of the Gordon Institute of Business School. You know, so there's some very educated people here, and I think that's the message of this party is that they want to appeal to this black middle class, but also people like, you know, who come from sort of disadvantaged communities, but were able to make something of themselves. And that is what, uh, you know, this party is saying, is that the state or the government, you know, when you speak about, you know, they they, they went to university, um, they were funded by the government, or whatever it was called back then. So that is what they're appealing to, is that, you know, the government can help make, you know, uh, people like them, make people actually successful no matter where they're coming from.
1: Uh, and to be so, in terms of, of support, you mentioned Makushule Ghana uh, Nick Padell as well. What, what kind of support are we seeing for this new party? Because there has been quite a lot of, uh, I don't want to use the word hype, but a lot of excitement, particularly as you say, amongst the black middle class.
5: Yes, yes, yes. Mate. And, you know, just taking a look. As obviously, we share the constitutional hill um at the courtyard it 's the launch and just you know when you when you just look um at, at the people in the in the venue you know it 's a pretty full venue you you just see it, you can 't help but feel that you know there is a sense of black middle class that they um that in terms of support but um you know I will say that Mandy, um this party is, you know they said the idea started about two years ago and they 've been to every Um, corner of the the country, speaking to community leaders, um, especially in uh, rural and township areas about what they can, um, about what they can, uh, what what a new political party or an idea of a new political party can offer them. And one thing Magashule Ghana said is that. The thing they got from the people is that they cannot be like any other political party that currently exists in South Africa. So that will be their goal going forward. As we do know, they're going to be contesting the 2024 uh, general elections Mm. next year with Zibi as its presidential candidates.
1: Uh, And to be so, just lastly, just in case people are getting confused, there's also another political party launching today called Arise South Africa. And that's a completely different thing.
5: Yes, 100%. 100%, yes.
1: (laughs) okay Tobiso thank you very much uh, Tobiso Goba, EWN reporter uh, he's at the launch there of Songezo Zibi's Rise Mzanzi I've seen some people saying "Ah, oh, this feels a bit like like Cope maybe it's got the same kind of feel about it Uh what do you think do you think this is a whole new prospect are you excited by the idea of a party that appeals to uh, the black middle class or is it a broader appeal are you excited by the ideas put forward by Ravonia Circle uh, and by Songhezo I'd love to hear from you. I've already seen some tweets. Hi, Mandy. I'm excited about the launch of Rise and Zanzi. All we want is credible leadership and people that have the interests of the country at heart.
0: The Midday Report.
1: So we were expecting a significant judgment today in the Joburg High Court in the child sex trafficking case against Gerard Ackerman, the 52-year-old facing over 730 counts, uh, including rape attempted murder. And this, of course, is the case linked to the uh, now deceased acting judge, Paul Kennedy, who died by suicide. Gamoto Modise has been following this matter for us. She was in court earlier today. Uh, Gamoto, good afternoon to you. Thanks for for coming in. No judgment today because the judge has taken ill."
6: Yes, so Judge Mohammed Ismail just um walking into the courtroom very briefly to tell us that he's not feeling too well. He was saying that, um, you know, he's uh, got uh, throat inflammation and so he wouldn't be able to read it, to read the judgment. We're expecting that judgment to be very lengthy. It's over 730 counts of um uh, charges ranging from rape, uh, sex trafficking. There's even an attempt, I believe, two attempted murder charges there. Um, and those are linked to, um, you know, linking these boys, underage boys, to have sex with an HIV positive Paul Kennedy. So the state has gone with attempted murder for that particular crime. So we're expecting a very long judgment. To the extent that the, uh, the state advocate um, Valencia Dube actually booked two days. So she is actually earmarked Monday and Tuesday for the judgment. However, we heard from Judge Ismail that he's going to be only needing Monday. Um someone who had a lot to say though today was Kherat Ackerman himself and he was speaking in the in the dock today. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. You
7: don't understand how bad prison is, you've got no idea. The judge has got no idea, the prosecutor's got no idea. Go there for a week.
8: they realize what it is that they do to people
5: i've never been malicious i've never harmed anyone i've never done anything wrong to anybody I've you don't knew- think
6: handing boys over to an hiv positive
5: man is wrong handing over they knew he was hiv positive. they knew they were going to him and you were
6: fine with that
7: they were fine with it
1: Wow, I mean, it's always pretty remarkable to hear an accused to deny culpability but acknowledge wrongdoing. Even the judge in the matter, in closing arguments, was saying, "Um, you're a modern day Fagin." Yeah. You know, Fagin took these boys in London. He taught them how to go steal from people, bring whatever they stole to him. You are the 21st century yeah. Fagin. Uh, anybody who's familiar with with literature will understand that, of course. And yet, he seems to to just not acknowledge any. Kind kind of responsibility
6: zero zero acknowledging of responsibility he actually feels like he doesn't understand why we're all there in that courtroom he says the business that he ran was uh, above board he said um it was a massage parlor and these boys knew what they were expected to do but of course during the entire trial there were a number of concessions that he would make from time to time like how some of the boys one of the younger boys was 11 and he knew that it was wrong uh, to to hand an 11 year old boy to adult men and he knew that it would end with sexual acts and rape Essentially. So, you know, it's so interesting to hear him and to see just how, um, you know, nonchalant and unbothered he is about this. And he even says, Mandy, that if this court finds him guilty, which I think is very likely from the evidence that we've heard, he's going to be going to another court. Uh, and just remind me, when is this judgment now going to be handed down? It's going to be handed down on Monday, the 24th. Okay. So thank you so
1: much. EWN reporter. So no judgment today. Uh, the voice you heard there was the accused in the matter, Gerard Ackerman. He's facing over 730 counts of rape and attempted murder to do with this child sex trafficking case. And, and the person who's not in the dock with him is the acting judge, Paul Kennedy, uh, senior advocate. Very, very well known, of course, in legal circles. The circles who died by suicide whilst out on bail last year
0: the midday report
1: Well, let's stay in the courts now because Angelo Gritzi, the former Borsasa COO, the issue around whether or not he can stand trial um, because of his poor health. A pulmonologist who assessed him a year ago saying that he isn't able to physically attend court because of his condition. Uh, So closing arguments in that matter of the fitness to stand trial being heard today. Bernadette Wicks, EWN reporter, is following that one. Bernadette, good afternoon to you. Uh, What is uh, happening in court today?
9: Well, Mandy, as you mentioned, um, closing arguments were set to take place today, and this comes in the back of about a week of evidence from different medical experts on the defense and the state side. But um, when we arrived at court today, we heard from advocate Manny Witts, who's representing Angela Egretzi, that the state and the defense had actually come to an agreement, um, and essentially they've agreed that... He's not at fault for his absence. Now, we must remember the inquiry involves two kinds of lines of inquiry. The first is whether or not um, Angelo Igrizzi was at fault for his absence from court over the last two years. If he was, the court could potentially revoke his bail. Then the second line of inquiry was um, around the delays that his absence has caused and whether or not those are reasonable. Um, If they were found to be unreasonable, the court could potentially force the start of the trial. Essentially, like I say, they've now reached an agreement. They agree that he was not at fault following the evidence that was heard um, over the last couple of days. And then when it comes to the way the trial should uh, proceed going forward, they've agreed that he can, he can attend proceedings. Um, he must attend virtually though. And so the courts issued an order to that effect. and And this has been resolved. And now we move forward.
1: Bernadette, thank you as always. Bernadette Wicks, EWN reporter, giving us an update there on Angelo Agrizi and his uh, the hearing in terms of his fitness to stand trial.
7: On 702 and Cape Talk, this is the Midday Report with Mandy Wiener, brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking, specialists who enable your business growth aspirations
1: fighting between rival forces raging in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum the paramilitary rapid support forces and the Sudanese Army clashing in the capital there uh, to date about 180 people have been killed thousands injured South Africans of course affected uh, those South Africans who are in Sudan the Department of International relations uh, has put out a statement uh, in the last uh, couple of minutes saying that uh, the South African government reiterates its appeal on the parties involved in the conflict in Sudan to heed international calls for an immediate ceasefire Uh, so let's speak now to Clayson Moniela who's the spokesperson for DURCO. Clayson good afternoon to you thank you for your time Um, let's start first with uh, the South Africans that are stranded in Sudan do we have a sense at the moment of how many South Africans are affected and what their status is
10: Yeah, we've got quite a significant number of South Africans in Sudan, Mandy, and uh, we keep adding the names uh, to the databases. We get calls from family members here at home. Uh, The unfortunate thing about uh, some South Africans when they travel and uh, leave or work in foreign countries is that they don't always inform the South African embassy in those countries. So it's only at a time like this when they reach out, uh, but we are adding those uh, names to the database. Our message to them and their families here at home who are worried is that the situation in Sudan right now is such that there is intense fighting. And the most challenging part of the fighting is that there's also airstrikes. Uh, As you have correctly said, there's over 180 uh, civilians that have been killed. Hospitals have been damaged, the airport, itself has been damaged and shut down uh, There is uh, practically a no-fly zone uh, in place in that country the streets are dangerous so it is impossible to move around our message is that they should stay indoors and avoid windows and uh, just hunker uh, down and keep safe until the situation improves and allows the South African government uh, to move in and evacuate our nationals uh, that's the best we can do for now. Our diplomats as well uh, are also facing uh, similar challenges. They're also staying wherever they live and uh, are not even able to go to the embassy. So the embassy is not operational. Uh, this is the case with most embassies of foreign countries in Sudan.
1: Mm. Uh, Clayson, can you give us a ballpark figure? Are we talking like 100 South Africans, 1,000 South Africans, just to get a sense of the scale of this of this problem? It, it is
10: It is not in the thousands. It's just over 100 that we have on our database now. And as I say we keep adding the names as we get calls uh, from family members Uh, so I will not give you an exact figure because it changes by the hour Uh, but the the, the message that we can convey to South Africans who are worried is that uh, the government is exploring all possible options uh, to provide assistance to our nationals who are stranded um, uh, in in, in Sudan right now, like most foreign nationals. In fact, the the latest report is that the EU uh, delegation or embassy or diplomats has been attacked. Uh, I think the Americans also face similar Uh, attacks. Uh, So no one is safe. Uh, So Mm. the best thing our people can do is to really stay indoors and avoid areas uh, where there is intense fighting until the situation uh, improves from a security point of view and allows government to move in and evacuate uh, our nationals. Uh,
1: And Clayson, then in terms of finding a resolution, uh, the South African government is reiterating its appeal uh, to the parties involved to heed international calls for an immediate ceasefire. Is South Africa as, as, as uh, its role in, in the AU playing any kind of, of um, role in trying to find uh, a peaceful solution to this conflict?
10: Well, we're supporting the efforts of the regional body, IGAD, who have already dispatched three heads of state uh, to try and mediate um, uh, some kind of a ceasefire and cessation of hostilities uh, for the two warring parties uh, to choose negotiations to resolve uh, this uh, uh, problem that they currently experience. So South Africa is supporting that, uh, echoing uh, the, the, the efforts, or rather supporting the efforts of the regional body. The African Union has made a similar call. The UN and all international uh, partners have also made similar calls so that remains our call in fact the most urgent thing now is for some kind of a ceasefire to be in place and allow humanitarian aid and mm. for people who are injured and who are stranded uh, to get out
1: Clayson, thank you very much. Clayson Moniela is the spokesperson for the Department of International Relations. So if you know somebody who is in Sudan, who is being affected, get in touch with international relations. But as they're saying at this stage, bunker down, uh, hold on. There's nothing we can actually do about it.
0: The Midday Report. Good day to you, Mandy. So here we have another new
5: party. It just dilutes the opposition. It just makes the ANC stronger. We need... the existing parties to unite wherever possible to get rid of this anc jeffrey santon
1: Thanks, Jeffrey. A reference there to Songhez uh Rise Mzanzi, which is launching today. There's also a Rise South Africa, which is launching today. Uh, Rich kondo on WhatsApp reminding me, of course, that Carl Niehaus uh, is also uh, launching um, Areta, uh, that political party. Uh, this is a constitutional democracy. Do you think it divides the opposition? Does it strengthen the ANC or does it provide alternatives and give people an option if they don't resonate with any of the other political parties? Parties.
7: The Midday Report with Mandy Wiener on 702 at Cape Talk. Brought to you by NetBank Commercial Banking. See money differently.
1: I'm sorry to tell you that not very good numbers in terms of inflation out today. Inflation has risen for a second consecutive month. Also, food prices have just rocketed. Uh, so consumer uh, inflation edging higher to 7.1% in March from 7% in February and 6.9% in January. This is uh, it's incredibly high if you look at the food and non-alcoholic beverages. That has really accelerated as well. So let's uh, unpack this a bit further with Maria. Rikki Bennett, who's the Director for Price Statistics Compilations at Stats SA. good afternoon to you. Thank you for your time. Food inflation is continuing its upward trend. What is driving this?
11: Uh, Yes, Um, the food and non-alcoholic beverage continue to accelerate. Um, The price is increasing by 14% over the last 12 months. And as you have said, uh, it's, it's still very high, and it's the highest increase in the last 14 years. The categories which experienced upward inflationary uh, pressures were milk, cheese, and eggs, sugar, sweets, and desserts, fruits, and uh, vegetables. Um, On the other hand, there was a little bit of slower growth in prices for bread and cereals, meat, oils, and fats, and fish products. Um, uh, on, the, on the food category
1: Sure, the largest annual increase um, since March of 2009 as you say, 14 years ago when it comes to food and non-alcoholic beverages that, that really is uh, concerning you do have um, new data on education fees you survey education fees uh, once a year in March what is
11: that telling us? Uh, that's correct, yeah. The education fees overall have increased by uh, 5.7% in uh, 2023. And um, if you uh, look a little bit at their breakdown, um, uh, the um, primary and pre-primary school fees was up 6.3%, and uh, secondary school fees 5.8%, and tertiary institutions were uh, up by 5.3%.
1: And then adding on to that, uh, you, uh, you also look at textbooks, which are up 11.3%, school bags up 10.6%. Uh, and, and the rise in, in textbooks is the largest annual increase since October 2009. That's correct, yes. It's, sure.
11: it's, uh, all, um, it's a very large increase.
1: Uh, and then also we've seen new excise taxes for alcohol and tobacco products coming into effect as well.
11: Yes. Um, uh, each year in March, we include the new excise taxes, which um, came into effect. And um, in March this year, the uh, contribution was 2- 2.2% um, uh, on the month on, on month change. And on the annual um, change, it was 6.2% uh, annually, which is a little bit uh, lower than the 63 that was um, for the annual increase in February.
1: And then just lastly, um, Mariki, in terms of domestic worker wages, uh, what do we know about that?
11: Well, the domestic worker wages is is, um, uh, a category that we um, uh, collect every quarter. And for the March quarter, uh, so it's the change between December and March, the increase was 1.2%, which led to a 5.2 annual uh, change. Uh, in, in the
1: wages. Mariki, thank you very much. Uh, Mariki Bennett is the Director for Price Statistics Compilation at Stats SA, breaking down those inflation numbers for us. You know, the concern now is do interest rates go up again? Can you handle another interest rate increase. I know lots of people won't be able to to stomach that at all. But the reality of the situation is that inflation keeps going up. It has edged to 7.1% in March. And, and if you look at that breakdown, as Mariki has explained, some of those categories are seeing the largest annual increases in 14 years. If you're buying textbooks, you'll know this. Um, if you're just buying milk and, and bread... That kind of stuff. Anything that you're consuming, uh, is just getting more expensive. How do we deal with
0: that? The Midday Report.
1: Well, speaking of all of that, uh, SARS Commissioner Edward Kiswita has been briefing Parliament on strategic and annual performance plans at the South African Reserve uh, at, at SARS. He's set out how SARS achieved its tax revenue for the financial year. Let's have a listen to what he has said about consumer confidence in SARS.
7: We are very, very mindful that we hold in trust the money of the public and therefore we owe it to South Africa to be an institution that they can have confidence in, but the reality is that SARS is a institution of government, and therefore our well-being and the confidence in SARS is also linked to confidence in government, the quality of expenditure um, and also to the sense of public goods, the benefit that public believes they receive from the goods.
1: SARS Commissioner Ed Kisvita briefing Parliament uh, earlier today. Babalo Ndenze, EWN reporter, was there as well. Babalo, good afternoon to you. Uh, what else has the Commissioner been saying about uh, the targets that have that have been reached um, and also just the public confidence in SARS at the moment?
12: Oh, yes, indeed, Mandy. Public confidence in SARS is one of the key issues that he touched on. And he says, you know, South Africans really have to be confident in their government and their entities like SARS. But also touching on some key highlights, uh, performance highlights. You know, for example, how you know net revenue increased by trillion to 1.67 trillion, which was one of the performance highlights. Also, you know, gross revenue collections also up not just the net revenue collections by 9.7 percent, of growth to 2.7 trillion in gross collections. So he says this is quite important, you know, in, for a country like South Africa that's kind of struggling as far as economic growth is concerned. So. Um, also, you know, not just collecting money, also, you know, dishing out the money and handing out refunds to South African taxpayers. And, you know, this makes up, you know, it's quite a, an astonishing figure of 381 billion in refunds. This has never been done before, according to SARS and SARS's chief revenue officer. And you know, that refunds also significantly up. So the number, just to give you know, perspective, the number of refunds are close to 5% of GDP, according to SARS. So some of these key highlights pointed out by SARS in their annual performance, and they seem to have, you know, um, you know gone beyond their, their own targets, Mandy, especially when it comes to things like seizures for, you know, narcotics and that kind of thing.
1: Babalo, thank you very much. Babalo and Denze, EWN reporter, watching the SARS commissioner Edward Kisvita briefing Parliament on the annual performance of SARS and uh, how uh, it has driven public confidence and how it has achieved its tax revenue for the financial year.
0: The midday report. The commissioner is
3: giving good figures there, yes, but uh, they have not been paying uh, the VAT returns. We stayed for one year We are small business One year not receiving any payment Up to now So I believe that they've been holding um, The VET returns So that they can uh, boost the figures Uh, They are happy there But we are not happy Because we depend on those returns And uh, we are not being able to to function properly Uh, uh, Just my concern Thank you.
4: This is Sebastian. Hi, Mandy. It seems to be very expensive to establish a political formation. My question is, who is funding these individuals? Why can't these individuals just allocate all this money to start businesses where they were going to create jobs instead of studying political formation where the way to me is just... I don't see the purpose because these individuals going to tell us that they were going to create jobs. Yeah, David.
1: Hey David of course it takes money you need a certain amount of money uh, to start a political party to register with the IEC as well um i i would disagree with you i don't think that you should necessarily take that money and 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 create employment uh, through entrepreneurship i think that if you want to start a political movement you're absolutely entitled to start a political movement um with that money um and and to to try and get votes when you go into the elections in 2024 lots of reaction coming in to uh, the launch by Songes or ZB today of rise mzanzi also of another political party arise south africa um, more options on the political landscape do you think that's a good thing or do you think that it is diluting the vote and we should rather be creating employment you can let me know what you think uh, as david has done
7: the midday report with mandy wiener is brought to you by NetBank commercial banking on 702 and cape talk NetBank is a licensed fsp and registered credit provider
1: in fact, somebody who does know a thing or two about starting a political party and uh, being on the, the political landscape is Musi Maimani, who's the leader of bold One South Africa. And he has announced that he is going to be challenging the Electoral Amendments Bill, which was uh, signed by President Cyril Ramaphosa this week. A few opposition parties and organizations have slammed the signing. There was a lot of anticipation that he needed to do it, but not in its current form. There are issues with it in the way that it is currently, um, as has been signed into action. Musi Maimani joining us now. Musi, good afternoon to you. Thank you for, for your time. As a matter of interest, just before we go into this this issue, there's a lot of commentary around the new political parties on the political landscape in South Africa. You, you welcome the choice?
7: Uh, good afternoon and good afternoon to fellow South Africans. 2024 is a coalition election. That's what it must be framed as. And I think that as more entrants come on board, I have gone out on record to say we're willing to work with people who share values, who share a 10-point plan that we've tabled on the table. So as new players come on board, whatever their contribution to the current electoral system looks like, it's going to be important that we coalesce around shared values. So, So if they can reach an audience that is not currently voting, it's great. We must welcome it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the task at hand is to animate South Africans with an alternative vision for the future of this country.
1: Okay, so now you've said that you are going to be going to court to challenge the Electoral Amendments Bill. Um, The the relevance here really is about how independent candidates can stand, how they can stand alone. Um, On the face of it, this has been celebrated as a good thing because it allows independents to, to stand alone and win elections, but not in the current form that it has been signed as. There are still issues around the Electoral Amendment Bill.
7: Yeah, undeniably. The the step is, what is the long-term destination here? It's a complete electoral reform. It's not just about independence being able to stand, but it's about ensuring that South Africa comes back, comes into a constituency-based model. It ensures that there's direct elections, so that even an individual who stands in a community as an independent is facing up to an individual who says, I'm aligned to a political party. Because then citizens, when they've got problems with healthcare, education, schools, uh, safety, know who to contact, not which party, who. And so what's going to be important going forward is that this is a step, but even in the step that has been taken, I think it's malicious compliance with the constitutional court judgment. The problems that sit is that even though they're complying to say individuals can stand, frankly, they've made it impossible. They've set the rules in such a way that the number of votes that you need to get a seat are much higher. They've made it that the cost is exorbitant, that actually individuals cannot spend, and ultimately it doesn't achieve what our constitution so wants to fight for which is power to the people Mm. when you vote you don't know who you're voting for at the end of the day and you can't hold them to account to account
1: so should the president not have sent the bill directly back to the constitutional court before signing it
7: i think that would have been the most logical step given that parliament has effectively not done the job that it was meant to do and it's delayed and delayed and delayed and by the way the delay isn't just the last two years it's actually the delay since President mandela President mbeki with the fans report it's the high level panel report by mr mutlante President mutlante it's also that now even in this process they've really ignored the concord so i we're going to ask the constitutional court to write in because as part of the 10 point plan i've said is that actually we need direct elections and one day South Africa is unique relative to other countries in Africa where they even directly vote for the president so that citizens mm. can know that their democracy
5: is in their hands.
1: Musi, thank you very much. Musi Maumane, leader of Build One South Africa, speaking to us there about the legal challenge to the electoral amendment bill that has been signed into law by the president.
0: The Midday Report.
1: The Muslim community has called on ESCOM to suspend load shedding, to to keep the power on during the Eid al fitr celebrations. Um, remember, load shedding was suspended for Christmas Day, for New Year's Day as well. It was downgraded to stage one for the Easter weekend. So the Muslim community is saying that they've had to contend with uh, stage six load shedding. That means up to 10 hours of power outages a day during the holy month of Ramadan. Uh, so let's uh, speak to Shah- Sheikh Riyad Fattar, who's the second deputy president of the Muslim Judicial Council. Uh, Sheikh Fatar, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, you have uh, uh, th- There has been an open letter that has been written to the president. ESCOM has been asked to suspend load shedding. Uh, what is your argument here?
8: Hi, good day and good day to your listeners. Wonderful to be on your program. Um, the argument is we are going into a festive period for the weekend. It's been a very spiritually uplifting uh, month for the Muslim community in terms of their fasting. You know how we suffered when it came to COVID-19. Families love to get together. We love to share, cook food when it comes to uh, times like this. So this is the request to the president and to the minister of electricity uh, to give us that opportunity for that weekend, which is this weekend coming. Uh, to suspend the load shedding.
1: And what kind of response have you received?
8: Well, we've only received that uh, the uh, letter has been acknowledged. Uh, It's not a strange thing for the Muslim Judicial Council to speak to the president or the presidency. We have, since COVID-19 and with the load shedding, been called to numerous meetings with the president and we're hoping that the channels are open so that every request can be accepted.
1: Well, thank you very much, Sheikh Riyad Fatara, second deputy president of the Muslim Judicial Council, explaining to us there uh, the request that has now been made from the Muslim community calling on ESCOM to keep the power on for the Eid al-Futur celebrations. Load shedding was suspended for Christmas Day, for New Year's Day as well, downgraded over the S- over the Easter weekend. Um, I understand that uh, ESCOM has been saying that uh, they will only make clear later in the week um the load shedding schedule for the week Weekend. So, ESCOM spokesperson Daphne McQuenna is saying that the, the load shedding schedule for the weekend will be made available. Uh, so, perhaps we'll get clarity on that.
0: The Midday Report.
1: That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and CapeTalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener.
0: The Midday Report.